Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James is about 90% of the way through your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take it. We believe that this is God's Word, and we want you to have God's Word, uh, and we want you to see and to hear from Him and Him alone. But this morning, we're going to start a new series walking through the book of James because we are really kind of building on what we've walked through throughout the year. We started in the spring looking at Ecclesiastes because we said to live for Christ in 2023 is a confusing time. That if we're honest, it's difficult for us to have the kind of wisdom necessary so that we would live for Jesus Christ. And so we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes seeking that kind of wisdom. And then this summer, we looked at seven aspects of salvation. The reality that before the world began, God called us to himself. And then through that time, now he has given faith to those who believe in Jesus Christ. He then cleanses us and changes us so that we would look more like Christ and then there is a coming day in which we will actually see Christ face to face. And all throughout that series, I, I kept reiterating that the two things I want us to know is I want us to know salvation, what it is, so that we know what it is. And secondly, so that we can answer the question of whether we have it or not. And now this morning, James is going to take us on a journey of taking that faith in Jesus Christ and actually applying it to our daily life. And that matters because if you want to live for Jesus in the world in which we live in, you will be hated. One of the difficulties I find so often is if we're not careful, we're given to nominalism. This idea where we believe in Jesus in our minds, but the moment anything better comes along, that takes priority and precedence in our life. And so what happens is when it becomes difficult to live for Jesus, we're quick to push the eject button on Jesus Christ. We'd rather give ourselves to fun, to freedom, to family but not to Christ. I think James is a good antidote for us to understand the reality that if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to be hated. In fact, all you have to do is just look at church history. In AD 155, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was arrested for preaching about Jesus Christ. And as they were getting ready to light a fire to his feet and burn him alive, he said this, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, yet little while extinguished. You are ignorant of fire, of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Well, why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. It's interesting to think about church history because we hear stories like that and we immediately think, oh no. 
And yet it's often through suffering that the Lord uses to bring about his kingdom promises. Because if you look at what happens here, you will see that 150 years later, all of Rome is Christianized. Fast forward about a thousand years later, and in 1415, the Czech reformer Jan Hus, Hus actually means in Czech, goose, and as he was preaching the gospel, and as he was uh, wanting the Bible in the native languages, they arrested him, and again, they sought to kill him. And in the midst of that, he said, today you burn a goose. But in a hundred years from now, there will be a swan of which you can neither roast or boil. And a hundred years later, we see Martin Luther come on with the Reformation and rediscover the truth of Jesus Christ. Even in our modern times, in 1970, listen to what the Romanian pastor Joseph Tsan said when he was arrested for preaching Jesus in Romania. He said, when the secret police officer threatened to kill me, to shoot me, I smiled and said, sir, you don't understand that when you kill me, you send me to glory. You cannot threaten me with glory. The more suffering, the more troubles, the greater the glory. So why say, stop this trouble? Because the more suffering, the greater the glory up there. And I told the interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing my supreme weapon is dying. And now, 50-some years later, Romania is open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, if we are not set right, and if our faces are not set right on Jesus, when suffering happens, we will so quickly push the eject button and miss the greater sovereign work of which God is doing to bring about a revolution, a revival, and a reformation, maybe in our country, in our world, wherever it is, we miss the fact of what God is doing. And James wants us to see that. James wants us to understand how we can believe in Jesus and live for him in the midst of a difficult and challenging world. And to see that and to help us with that, this morning he's going to show us this point. And this is the point he's going to show us, that suffering steadfastly comes from joy in Jesus. The only way you and I will actually be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ is if we have joy in Christ. If you don't have joy in Christ, you will not suffer for him. And yet suffering is often the key that unlocks the eternal glory and blessings that Jesus has to offer. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. As we do, would you stand with me as we read we stand to remember that God is speaking to us because you don't need my word, you need his. So James chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through verse 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So James, this letter written by the apostle of James, is a very controversial letter. Martin Luther, that great German reformer that rediscovered the gospel for us, he called it an epistle of straw. He actually wanted to leave it out of his Bible. It's because so often there's been this debate that maybe James is preaching a message of works all the while Paul, in the letters of like Galatians and Ephesians, is preaching a message of grace. And all along, we've done something that we typically do. We hear, but we don't listen. If you're married, you know this, right? There's a way in which you can hear the very words and regurgitate those words while not listening to the message of those words. That's so often what people have done to the book of James. They've heard his words and they've misunderstood and misapplied his message because James's message is simple. That true faith produces God-glorifying works. You can't separate those two. You can't have true faith over here and God-glorifying works over here and say, today I'm going to be in this camp and tomorrow I'm going to be in that camp. You can't. If you miss one, you miss the totality of what the Bible actually teaches, which is a faith in Jesus changes us, makes us more like Christ. And now James wants to help us with that reality. And to get us to that reality, what he's going to do is he's going to write this book helping us to understand how to apply the Christian life to uh, the Christian faith to our life daily. And to do that, we kind of got to understand a little bit of the backdrop to James. So James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Anyone want to be Jesus' half-brother? I'm pretty sure most of us are like, yeah, that'd be great. Until you get in an argument with your brother, and you're always wrong. Mom comes and says, what happened? She already knows it's not Jesus' fault. And this leads his family to think he's crazy. In fact, in the Gospels, we read that when Jesus is ministering, they send some family members out to him and say, hey, uh, you're kind of crazy. Come back inside. And yet the moment Jesus dies and rises from the dead, it completely alters their view of Jesus to the point that, notice in verse 1, James doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus. He doesn't put himself on the same line of Jesus, but rather he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James lowers himself and realizes who Jesus actually is. And to help us to understand this, James kind of writes in a way of of like, The book of Proverbs, if you've ever read that, it's kind of one line about something and then the next line's about something else and you're kind of confused before you realize it's it's really a collage. 
but also like the book of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of themes that James uses from there of Jesus' teaching, and he brings those together in this book to help us to live the Christian life in today's world. And what matters is that he did that in light of Rome. A lot of times we think that what we're dealing with today is new. It's not. Rome was a society given to excess. Does that sound familiar? Rome was a society that elevated sex. Does that sound familiar? Rome was a society that worshipped all sorts of different gods and began to make gods that they desired to worship. Does that sound familiar? It's the reality that James is writing in the midst of this. And as he's writing, he's saying, guess what? There's one God, not millions of gods. There's one. And this God is Jesus. And he's not just God, but he is Lord. He is the sovereign ruler. The very title that Caesar took for himself. And so to call yourself a Christian... Christian, to call yourself one of those with him is to now be hated by the culture that thinks you are crazy, ridiculous, and maybe even a bigot. It's in the middle of that that James wants us to understand the suffering that we are going to experience and wants to ground us so that we would stand firm in that suffering. And to do that, he's going to show us three truths. So let's look at these truths. The first truth he's going to show us is the reality. The reality. We need a reality check. That if we're going to follow Jesus, people are going to hate us. One of the things that disturbs me is that we can tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ and focus on all the blessings and all the good things that will happen and how life will be amazing with Christ. That's true, but if we don't also remind that it is a death to ourself, a death to this world, and a death to this way of life, we're not communicating the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand this fullness. And notice how James points us there. Again, look at verse 1. He he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then notice who he writes to. He writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, this is language that should uh, point you back to the Old Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel. As they were worshiping God in the land of Israel, they were able to experience God's blessing and his protection and his uh, providing for them. But the moment they began to rebel and continued in their rebellion and did not repent and turn back to God, is the moment they began to experience consequence for their sin. If you read the Old Testament, you'll just see that the people of God continue rebelling to the point that God brings in other nations to conquer them and to disperse them across the known empire and to uh, lead them, which is the worst possible thing they could imagine, lead them away from their homeland. Because it's in their homeland that they actually are able to worship God. Because it's in their homeland, the capital city of Jerusalem, where they would go and they would offer sacrifices and be made right 
with God. And now James is writing to all these people who have been dispersed and have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they might be feeling like they're all alone, or they might be feeling like life is difficult. And, and in the middle of that, he is writing, wanting to encourage, and wanting to help them. Because what happens when we feel apart from God? When we feel apart from God, we begin to wander, don't we? We begin to give ourselves into sin. Hebrews tells us this in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, Hebrews, the author there, reminds us that we need to meet together. Because if we don't meet together to remind each other about the goodness of God, sin creeps in. And our hearts begin to harden and we fall away from God. Look, we don't gather on a Sunday morning so that I would have a job. We don't gather on a Sunday morning so you'd feel good. We gather on a Sunday morning to remind ourselves that sin is real, Satan is real, and we serve a Savior that wants to rescue us and give us new life. And so we gather to remind one another about the power of Jesus Christ, about the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And the reason that matters is look at verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James is purposefully vague. I love that he did not list the kinds of trials because what that allows us to do is to, to be able to read in the trials that we are facing into this passage and to be given a grid for how we live for Jesus in the face of those trials. But we have to be clear about what these trials are. Okay? Trials are not you sinning and experiencing the consequence for your sin. That's not a trial. That's your sin. Trials are not you doing dumb things and experiencing the consequences for you doing dumb things and then saying, oh, I'm in a trial. No, that's you doing dumb things. Trials are when we want to do the right thing because we love Jesus and we're faced with opposition. And James wants us to understand that this is a reality in life. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that you and I are born with a heart that goes against the ways of God. So let's just play this out for a moment. You got a heart that goes against the ways of God, and now you have a heart that wants to follow God, and they come into the same room. Their desires and decisions will be opposing one another, and it's just a matter of time before fireworks start to happen. And James says, if you want to follow the ways of God, you got to know that there's going to be fireworks happening. And how do those fireworks happen, or, or what ways do they play out in our lives? I think there's a couple of ways. One is you might be scorned. This is where people speak ill of you. They dismiss you because you believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe they make fun of you. Whatever it is, they scorn you. Secondly, they spurn you. Maybe you're up for a promotion. But you don't get it because you believe in Jesus. I know that to be true. 
I once worked a job where I should have got a promotion, but because of my value of being in church each week prevented me from getting the promotion compared to other people who didn't know the job. That happens. Third, people might try to silence you. They try to cancel you. They try to dismiss your views. This can be on social media. This can be in a group like this. They immediately try any tactic they can to just kind of silence and stop you. Sometimes they might even use uh, extreme language to get you to back down from your belief. Sometimes we're struck. We're beaten. We're assaulted. We have brothers and sisters around the world who would love to sit in a room like this to hear the word of God without fear. And sometimes we're stolen from. Hebrews 10.34 tells us that the people were plundered for following Jesus Christ. People would literally break into the house, steal their stuff, all because they were trying to follow Jesus Christ. So what do we do about this? Well, I think there's two ways that we need to prepare ourselves. One is we need to realize it happens. One of the biggest troubles we have in the Christian life is that we're not prepared for suffering because we've bought the American lie that we should not suffer. Nobody else in the history of the world has experienced a longevity of blessing and time without suffering as we have in our country. And one of the ill effects of that is it has caused us to believe that we will not suffer for the, faith, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways to prepare for suffering is to just know we're going to suffer. And another way to prepare for suffering is to be careful what you say. Ever gone through a hard season and someone says, God's good. And you're like, you didn't listen to me at all. That's true. But I kind of want to smack you for saying that right now. It, maybe I'm the only one. Or maybe you've gone through a hard season and someone just kind of throws out one of those other one-liners. Oh, just got to pray or, you know, it'll get better. One of the ways to prepare for suffering is that we are careful to not just throw out one-liners to pacify people. But we get into the suffering with them. And we love them with truth from God's word. So we do not trivialize this pain. Because otherwise, we're going to miss what James has for us. Because James wants us to respond in a certain way. And that's the second thing that we see this morning is the response. Let's be honest for a second. How do you typically respond to suffering? If you're like me, you might try to justify yourself to prove why you do not deserve this kind of suffering, to prove why others are wrong and I am right and so I don't deserve this. And, and in that moment, I become my own PR person, if you will. I'm trying to vindicate myself. Others of us may get mad and seek revenge. Maybe we do that physically, but maybe we do that verbally. We just lash out because we don't know what to do. Others of us maybe will shut down and we just kind of numb ourselves. 
Maybe through a substance or through food or through entertainment, we find something to, to give us peace in the midst of a difficult season. And others of us blame shift. Maybe we complain or we grumble or we project what we feel onto other people. And in each of those ways, notice the direction. It's not to Christ. It's to ourselves. We're not, our strategy is not about exalting Christ, but rather it's about preserving ourself. And that never fixes the problem, does it? It just kicks the can down the road. But notice what James calls us to do. Look at verse 2 again. You, you should be glad that I'm not the author of the book. So I wouldn't have written this. But James did. He said, count it all joy. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. And that's not a command that you can pick and choose when to apply it. It's a command that you apply every time, every way, every circumstance that you are looking and seeing the suffering and your eyes are immediately diverted off of the suffering and up to Jesus and having joy in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of joy that is talked about in other parts of Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that we're going to face various trials for following Jesus. And in verse 8, he tells us, though you have seen him, that's Jesus, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The kind of joy that we are to have in the midst of trial is this inexpressible joy. It's actually the same word used in Matthew 2 when the wise men travel hundreds of miles at night across a desert where there is no protecting army, is no protecting police force, and they are traveling to see what? A baby. I don't remember going to the hospital for any of your babies. I don't know if I was here. I've been to the hospital when new babies are born. <clears throat> I don't think I would have traveled hundreds of miles at night with no lights, with fear of getting mobbed, with precious presence for a baby. And yet Matthew says that the wise men did this with joy. It's actually the same word used in Matthew 13, 44. There Jesus tells a parable of a man who stumbles over this treasure in a field and he goes and buries it back all up so that no one else finds it and he sells everything he has. Why? So he would buy that field and get the treasure. But Jesus doesn't just say he sells everything and he buys the field. He says, no, in his joy, 
he sells everything to buy that field. In his joy, he sees that Jesus is better than anything and everything in its totality. And so he sells it all so he can get Jesus in the kingdom of Jesus. And now James says, that's the kind of joy we should have in the midst of suffering. That's the kind of joy that we need to express in the midst of trials and tribulations as they come upon us. But how do we have that kind of joy? How do we actually experience that kind of joy in our life? We do that by seeing the spiritual realities of the world. Let me be honest. The times in my life when I'm blinded to spiritual realities of the world are the times in my life when I'm too busy to see the spiritual realities of the world. The time when my schedule is so packed, when my life is so chaotic, when I'm running in a hundred different directions, that is the very moment I'm unable to see the goodness of God. And thus I'm unable to experience joy in Jesus Christ. My fear is that some of us today, my fear is some of us have so many activities that we're doing that we don't have joy in Jesus. And so when suffering comes, we're not going to withstand. My fear is that some of us are thinking, that's not me. I really don't do a lot. Except get out your phone and spend hours upon your phone, distracted from the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, for us to have this joy, we, we've got to have our hearts caught up in something. We were made to worship. Joy will result from what you're worshiping in. And if your worship is in anything other than Jesus Christ, joy will not result. And you will not stand fast in the midst of suffering. And so James wants us to have this joy in Christ And the way we have the joy in Christ is that we are able to just slow down and seek the face of Jesus Christ. There's a couple of ways we do that. We've got to be a people of the Bible. We've got to be a people that know Jesus, not based on what other people say about him, but what he says about himself. Do you read your Bible looking for Jesus? Or do you read your Bible looking for yourself? How you might improve. How you might be a better version. All of those are secondary elements to seeing Jesus in all of his glory, all of his grandeur. The majestic one seated at the right hand of God who will return with glory and power. We read that to begin with in Job, didn't we? That his voice. I mean, I'm just blown away whenever I read Genesis 1. And I think about the creation story. If you know me, you don't want me to create anything for you. It's not going to be square. 
It's not going to be level. I'm going to try as much as I can. It's just not going to get there. But when I think about Jesus or, or God creating things, I think about him getting out a ruler. I think about him uh, getting a saw out. I think about him pouring concrete. I, I think about something physical that he is doing. And all we read in Genesis 1 is that it is his voice that declares, let there be light and their light. If you're a parent, you know your voice doesn't have as much power as what you once thought, Right? I can't even get my kids to do everything I want just with my voice. My spouse, my friends. And all God does is just with his voice speaks and it happens. Do you pause long enough to just reflect on the Lord? Because if you don't, you're never going to have the joy that James is calling us to have. And we've got to be a people who are setting this kind of environment. Men, we have got to be men who are setting this kind of environment. Whether we're single, married, have kids, grown kids, it does not matter. We need to be men who step up and actually set the temperature of the conversation to be directed on Jesus so that everybody else can flourish because everyone's looking to our leadership. And when we want to talk about the game this afternoon rather than the Jesus who has accomplished the greatest victory overall, that's what everybody else starts talking about. And our joy level sinks. So we need to be a people that are stepping up and, and saying, what does it look like to have this joy in Jesus, to be focused on Jesus, to be loving and living for Jesus? Because James gives us the very reason we should do this. And that's the third thing he shows us. It's the result. If you're like me, you need to have a finish line in view to know what you're shooting for and to put all of your energy and effort towards. And that's exactly what James does here. Look at verse 3. He says that the testing of our faith, what does it do? It produces a steadfastness. If you want to know how to persevere and how to endure, the only way you can get there is to go through the channel of suffering. I would love to bench press 200 pounds. My guess is you realize I cannot best bench press 200 pounds. And so if I go up to the bench press and start trying to lift that weight at 200 pounds, I'm never going to get there. I have to start at 50 or maybe 25 for me and work my way up to 200. You see, the way in which we grow in maturity, we grow in Christ, we grow in perseverance, we grow in endurance, we grow in steadfastness, is that we enter into trials and we stay the course with Christ through the trial. Because it's in the trial that the Lord actually grows us. What a promise. What a promise, church. Your trial is not wasted. I don't know about you. I hate wasting my life. 
especially a trial. And James just said, your trial's not wasted. If you're looking to Jesus, it's not wasted because it's going to produce this steadfastness. This anchoring for your soul. And you can always tell who's been through a trial or not, right? Because of how they talk. Because of the perspective that they have. And I wonder if some of us are stifled in our growth because we are unwilling to do the hard thing. We're unwilling to engage in the trial with Christ. But if we do, look at what he says in verse 4. This steadfastness, it has a full effect. What is that full effect? It's that we're perfect. It's that we're complete. And it's that we're lacking in nothing. Do you see the beauty of that? Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you see the grid that Peter and James is giving us? That when we uh, live our lives on autopilot, we do what our hearts desire, which is the way of the world, which is a lack of self-control, a lack of following Jesus. But the moment we desire to follow Christ is the moment we say no to ourselves, we say no to the world, we live a disciplined, self-controlled life, and it's the moment that we begin to follow Jesus and say yes to Jesus, and in doing that, we say no to sin. You cannot have your sin and have a Savior together. You must pick one or the other. And when you pick sin, you must repent of that and run back to your Savior. But you can't have both. And James says, when we love our Savior so much that we count the suffering for him as joy, what will happen is that we will become more Christ-like. We will be mature in the way in which God has called us to mature. And so this morning, how are you handling your suffering? If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ in here this morning, I want to be clear to you that there is one who has suffered in your place. And he did it with all joy. He did it with all focus on God. That Jesus Christ endured the trial on your behalf. He actually endured the greatest suffering you can imagine. A, a suffering where he bore the wrath of God. Where he was separate from the Father. Taking on the weight of our sin. And he did it for the sake of joy. So that he could conquer death and rise to new life. And give you and I eternal life. All you have to do is just repent of your sin. 
and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus this morning, how are you handling suffering for Christ? Do you have joy in Christ? Do you see Christ as more beautiful than the things of the world? And so you can say with Paul, this is just a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory in heaven with our Savior. Is that your heart? The way to get there is not to muster up strength to get there. The way to get there is just to seek Jesus Christ and Him alone. To set your face on Jesus and allow Him through prayer, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit to just stir your heart affection for Him once again. Because if you want to follow Jesus Christ... There are going to be millions of options to distract you, to cause difficulty in your life, so that you will hit the eject button on Christ. And the only way for us to stay the course is to find joy in Jesus Christ. Without that joy... We give in to our suffering. And so won't you turn with me to Christ. Stare directly into his face. As we sang this morning, shout to the Lord for his goodness to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth this morning. We thank you that your word is good to us. In a season like this in which we need to know the truth, we need to know who you are, we pray that you would remind us of that. We pray that you would help us. Father, we confess that we have often run after other things rather than you. That we have allowed ourselves to be taken up into the distractions and allowed us to wander. And so we pray that you would reset our hearts to find joy in you. That you would reset our hearts to love you above all else. And that you would help us to be able to stand firm in the midst of suffering, we pray. In your son's precious name, amen.